1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Hey, folks. I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, Let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the team house and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page and you can actually support the stream and well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes.
2: Yeah. If if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not so good review, why don't you just send us an email? and We'll talk about it.
0: (laughs) Special operations. Covert ops. Espionage the team house with your hosts jack murphy and david park hi everyone welcome to episode 225 of the team house i'm jack murphy here with david park dimitri behind there producing pressing pressing buttons we don't really know what he does but he's back there pressing buttons and turning dials Uh, And Our guest on tonight's show is Alana Berry. She's the author of The Peacock and the Sparrow. Uh, She served as a CIA case officer and now writes espionage fiction. Um, I read this book uh, just a few months back, really loved it, wanted to have her on the show as soon as possible. So we we really appreciate you jumping on here with us tonight.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll start at the beginning, like we usually do. We'd love to hear uh, sort of about your how you grew up, what your upbringing was like, and, and sort of how that kind of propelled you towards governmental service.
3: Well, I think um, I grew up in the Cold War. So, um, you know, for me, there was always kind of a clear bad guy. Um, and I think, I mean, I think that that really was part of it. Um, and then I studied abroad in college and I kind of fell in love with the world beyond um, and foreign affairs. And um and so I think that really kind of pushed me toward intelligence. Um, also my my dad served in the Israeli army Um, and he, he was born in America. He just happened to be traveling in Europe when the six day war broke out in in 1967. Yeah. And he was just like young and, you know, adventurous and went to Israel and, um, he was a Golani Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he always told me stories about that. And, um, I don't know. I just felt like at a certain point, I, I, you know, I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to, to do something, um,
0: So, So, I I mean, expand on this a little bit. I mean, you you had this sort of uh, father telling you some of these stories about conflict, but then also, you know, you're growing up and getting interested in international affairs. And I mean, you said you studied abroad in college?
3: Yes, I studied at the London School of Economics.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. what was this like a thought in the back of your mind that maybe you were going to uh, try to parlay this uh, education into um, the intelligence community? Or how, how did how did that kind of percolate in the back of your mind?
3: Yeah, I traveled around Europe. I loved it. Um, and then after college, I um, I interned at the Office of Naval Intelligence. You mm-hmm. guys are familiar mm-hmm. with that. Yeah. And I loved it. Um, and I had applied to law school. And I kind of was like, I don't know if I want to go to law school. (laughs) I'd actually been accepted. And I, you know, I I was like, I'm going to defer law school. So I deferred it for two years and applied to the um, Joint Analysis Center in um, Molesworth, England, um, and for the U.S. Department of Defense. And at the time, so this was, I graduated from college in 1998. And um, this was, uh, if you guys remember, um, the Balkans were the big issue mm-hmm. in the 90s. So um, this was post Dayton. So that was really what I worked on. And I would go back and forth from, um, from Molesworth to the Balkans and, um, and, it, and I loved it. It was just really fascinating. I loved Intel analysis. Um, I loved working with the military.
2: How how did you, out of curiosity, how did you find out about this analysis of job over in Europe? Uh, I mean, the internet. Like, you're not doing job searches on the internet or anything. No, we didn't have the internet. Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, No, it was through the Office of Naval Intelligence, and my dad had suggested it. Um, He worked for the government doing various contracts in the um, national security sector, and he'd heard of. Office of Naval Intelligence and and that's where I started and I um analyzed Iran at the Office of Naval Intelligence. Um it, but I fell in love with the Balkans too. I thought it's such an in, it was such an interesting conflict. It was so murky. Mm-hmm. Um much like the Arab Spring later on, you know when I served when I was in Bahrain. Um but uh yeah, I just I found the work fascinating and I loved sort of being in the thick of foreign affairs.
0: And what was the? I mean, after doing that through the the nineteen nineties, I guess that winds down. I mean, I guess I, I should probably ask you then, you know, a question that comes up a lot on this show is, you know, where were you on nine eleven, and and how did that impact yeah. your your career trajectory?
3: Yeah. So I spent two years working as an intel analyst for Department of Defense in at Molesworth near, near Cambridge, England, going back and forth to the Balkans, and then I thought, and that then that's when I applied to the CIA. Um, I felt like that was kind of like the next logical step Um, in the sense of I'd worked I'd worked with the agency in my DOD job I'd worked with um, the military and I felt like I loved being overseas I wanted to continue to um, be an Intel so I applied to the CIA but back then the, uh, the the time was glacial the processing time for your application took forever it took like two years so in that time I went back to law I went to law school I had deferred my entry so I went to law school at university of Virginia. Um, and then nine 11 happened during my sophomore year. And, um, so I had already applied to the CIA. I was already on track. Um, so I think it cemented, you know, my resolve, my feeling that, cause I was like the only one in my class who everyone else was getting wind and dined by these big law firms and, um, and, uh, and it was a little, you know, at times I was like, Oh, am I making the right decision? Like I'm foregoing this, you know, lucrative career at a big, <laughs> at a big law firm. But, um, but then nine eleven happened and yeah, I remember we watched it, you know, on these, on these screens, they, they, they canceled classes, um, for the day. And, um, and we watched it on these big screens and, um, yeah, I felt like I was, I was doing the right thing. Um,
0: so did your 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 application with the agency suddenly get pushed to the forefront you're getting phone calls is that it? oh
3: no i no. wish it was such a bureaucracy <laughs> back then i mean i wish um yeah no it still took another i well no it still took a while but but then i started but i think that also impacted my willingness to, you know i volunteered to go to baghdad and um I think that that definitely was part of it.
0: Well, also, I mean, you're you made the jump from uh, being a DOD analyst to being a case officer. Um, was was that the position you applied for or like how did how did that come about?
3: Yeah. So I yes, I applied to be a case officer um, and not a CMO, which is a collection management officer, which they kind of describe as like the hybrid between a spy and an analyst, which might have been a better fit for me. I mean, the case officers are the ones meeting the sources more and the CMOs, the collection management officers, kind of sit at station there, the intermediaries between the analysts and the case officers, and you know, going out on meetings. You know, I, I think I thought this is, I wanted to just be in the trenches. I wanted to be at the tip of the spear. You know, yeah. I wanted to be where the action was. I loved being in the Balkans. I loved being in Bosnia. I loved, you know, working with the military. I just loved everything about it. Um, it just... The immersion of it, and so I think I felt like a case officer's job would would be more like that than an analyst job.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, in reality, like what I found out, I think it wasn't such a great fit for me, to be honest. Um, I think you know maybe I would have been better off as an analyst. I mean, I really loved my my job as an analyst, um, and a case officer. You know, you use your brain in a different way. Um, you use your brain to think about someone's vulnerabilities you know or their weaknesses or what kind of snacks they like (laughs) or or like how to run a surveillance detection route um logistics tradecraft so um so i didn't i don't think i realized fully Mm -hmm. what the job was like um
0: well how how could you either
3: yeah um and yeah. So, I mean, I think it probably wasn't as good a fit uh, as I had hoped it would be.
2: What What did uh, you major in in college that sort of led to your your analysis job and the intern internship, the analysis job, and then later the agency?
3: Yeah. So I was a double major in economics and poli sci, um, and and I had really been mostly interested in just domestic politics. Um, but it wasn't until I studied abroad and I traveled around Europe and I was like, wow, this whole other world is out there. And that's when I really became interested in, in foreign affairs. Um, and in law school, I mostly took international law and national security law classes. Okay.
0: So
3: it, it was very much, it was very similar.
0: So, uh, walking through the process, I mean, what, what, was, what year was it? About what time when you got accepted into the agency to begin training?
3: So, uh, 2002 okay. is when I started Um, and then, so I did, I did a bunch of training, um, and then a rock happened, (laughs) as you guys know, and, um, and they need. and I just graduated from the farm. So I graduated from the farm in, uh, May of 2004 and, um, they wanted volunteers to go to Baghdad. I mean we hadn't the station hadn't been set up that long
0: well, before before we breeze through that oh. I want I want to hear also a little bit about like what did you think of the training at the farm and now you're learning all this trade craft I mean how did, how did you enjoy it uh, what, what was going through your head at this time?
3: Yeah I did I did enjoy it oddly enough. Um, I the training was very traditional. It's the same training that I think, They've been doing for years, which was—I mean—it's basically two components. You have the, um, the kind of psychological training, which is how to develop sources, you know, how to how to um, how to meet them, how to find out their vulnerabilities and their weaknesses, and how to get them to you know betray their country and and give you information. So that's the one part is sort of the human component, and the other part is the logistical component, which is the trade crap, which is like how to run surveillance, detection routes, and how to get snacks and how to you know do covert communications and um how to do combo plans, things like that. So those were the two. So it was very um traditional. I mean it was the same kind of like just cold almost cold war tech training. Um the same nuts and bolts that I think that the agency had been doing for years. And um and I you know I so I I liked it. It was it was intensive. Um I I do, you know, it's interesting because looking back, I feel like there weren't a ton of women. Um, and I feel like some of the worst sort of, I don't know, sexism I experienced was at the, at the farm. <laughs> um, but that really didn't, it didn't um, diminish that it was really overall a good experience. Um, but, uh, but actually the training I think was not, I mean, as I Talk about later. I don't think the training was really geared toward the kind of environments that we would increasingly operate in the you war know, on terror. And, yeah, because um, I virtually I, I used very little of the training that I learned at the farm in Iraq.
0: And and so you graduate, and you said they were they were looking for volunteers at this at this point. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. I mean, they, there was there was kind of a debate. Like, do we um, force people to go? or not and um
0: well i i've heard that they can't that they unlike the military the cia can't yeah. force you to go to a war zone if you don't want to i don't
3: think they can because it's civilian i mean right, i think right. that you know i mean the worst that's going to happen is you get fired they're not going to like court martial you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. right what can they do um so yeah i mean right but there was talk that it was going to be like you were going to have to do it or you would get fired for example um so Yeah, so I was—I started off right out out of the farm. I had requested and and I received um, Central Europe division, Mm -hmm. and that was sort of and because I'd been worked in the Balkans and that was sort of my natural fit. Um, But then Iraq happened and and they needed people and I volunteered. I thought you know better me than than like someone with a family. I mean I was I I don't know Dave, how did you feel? I mean you were you were in. Baghdad yeah as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I wanted to be there, you know, like yeah. it's, you know, Jack was there too. Yeah. Um, you know, and yeah, I mean, I wanted to be there. Like everything that I had done in my life up in that
0: point kind of was waiting for that moment, I guess. It, it, it was funny, we were talking before the show. We were all in Iraq at the same time. I mean, I, I was further north in Mosul, but you two guys were in Baghdad yeah. in, in 2005, right? 2004, no, 2005, five, 2005
2: yeah.
3: for you? right. Yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So November, 2004 to November, 2005. So almost all of 2005.
2: Right. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, it seemed, it seemed like the right thing, you know, Saddam was right. a horrible person and
3: right.
2: his sons were horrible people. Like it, it seemed, but, but I think we saw the same thing there, right. That we saw in the Balkans. Cause you talk about the Balkans with Tito going, Tito was a horrible person, but in yeah. a way he was, you know, holding together. Yugoslavia together.
3: Yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. So same thing. I just thought, you know, this is, this is the moment when my country needs me. I'm just going to volunteer.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so, so I went um, and I mean, they, I had to do a bunch of training, um, but I guess it wasn't that much. Yeah. It was not long after I, after I left the farm. Were they um,
0: they, they fussing you up on uh, like some weapons training and things like that. They before, did,
3: yeah. Yep. Yep. Um I had had a little from DOD, but, you know, we had different weapons um, when I had to go to the Balkans. Um, we we carried a Beretta in the Balkans, and it was a Glock in Baghdad. So, um, yeah. so Did, did you
0: did enjoy that, that portion of the training, the sort of like, I guess, like paramilitary training, like driving around, uh, smashing through barricades and shooting guns and that sort of stuff?
3: Some of it I did. Um, some of it... So, some of it... Um, they had us go down to a course that was run by a company. I won't say the name, um, but it, they were a little bit um, like a little bit loosey goosey with their <laughs> with their safety, and um, and they really did not like women. I'll be I'll be honest about that. They really. I was the only woman in my training group, and I, there were no women instructors at all, um, and. Um, and, yeah, so... And, wait, wait,
0: and, this wasn't a notorious mercenary firm that worked in Iraq, was it?
3: I'm not going to say. Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, there's a lot of... You know,
2: whenever the CIA is portrayed in the movies, um, all the agents are also, like, you know, CQB experts. They all... But yeah. as a case officer if it hadn't been for Baghdad, would that weapons training have been a normal part of your pipeline?
3: No, absolutely not. No. And we're talking like minimal training. We're talking, I mean, I maybe had more than most just because I had worked for DOD, Mm -hmm. but, um, and they do, they do a little bit of training at the farm, um, weapons training. And then you do a little bit of extra training, you know, for Baghdad, but, but no, I'm, Oh, it's so funny because like, no, I mean, most of the case officers had minimal weapons training. They didn't really know how to handle weapons. I mean, every now and then you'd get a report um, in cable traffic, like negligent discharge. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and it was funny to me because the military had such strict rules about you know what to do with your weapon, and we really didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, And I mean, like we had this bar, the Babylon bar, and people would just, you know, get wasted with their, and their weapons were loaded. And it was like, (laughs) you know, no one thought anything of it. It was just whatever. And I remember constantly like going, maybe I'm skipping ahead, but like going to, you know, chow halls in Baghdad and I would have my weapon loaded um, because that's just how we rolled at the CIA. I mean, we didn't really ever clear our weapons. And I I mean, the military would be on me. They'd be like, you need to clear your weapon. Like, Mm -hmm. what's wrong with you? And I was like, oh, sorry. This is my
4: safety. Yeah, right.
3: (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. But but
3: the military was always like, what's wrong with you guys?
2: Yeah. What was your first impression when you got to Iraq?
3: You know, I think it took me about a month to realize just how shitty it was, how dangerous, (laughs) like, how... um, like really, what a what a shipstorm it was! Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. I you know, I'd be interested in hearing what you guys think because, like, I remember landing, and and it's like you feel like okay, this isn't so bad, and then you you start hearing these sounds, like these thuds. I mean, I remember hearing these these thuds in the office, and then in our trailer, in my trailer, and you don't know what it is, and then like a big mortar crashes near you, you know, and you hear the you know the, the the sirens and the run for cover and, and I, you know, it was like a delayed reaction. I think like about a month in, um, you kind of, you kind of realize, wow, this is such a fucking shit storm. Like you're getting, you know, we were getting hit. I mean, I, I think from about the time I arrived to when the elections happened was like the worst of my time there. I mean, we would get hit maybe fifty times a day or a night um in the green zone with mortars and rockets and um I mean what what was did, what were your experiences? I mean Mosul was awful, right? Mosul was like <laughs> where the bad was.
0: It was it was I mean this time frame you're talking about was heating up and I mean by the time I got there was that summer of oh five and um you know at the time, you know, with the Rangers being part of the task force, I mean, it's almost like, uh, like you're one of those toys inside the machine with a big claw that comes down and grabs you and then moves you and then pops you down. So, okay, from Fort Benning, we fly in, land in Misul, and now you're you're at war, and um, you are right up until the day you get on the ramp of that aircraft to fly home. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of a, a surreal experience. But I mean, yeah, things were very hot back then. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, and we would go out. So basically we mostly stayed in the green zone and, um, sources would, would walk inside the green zone. And I should say off the bat, like I've written nonfiction pieces over the years that I have not published, but that the agency has cleared. So that's why I know what I can talk about with this stuff. But, um, so we would have sources walk into the green zone, um, so that was, you know, I guess relatively safe, although we would often wait at the checkpoints for them to escort them in. And that was like a big target for suicide bombers Mm -hmm. was these checkpoints, you know, which were like bottlenecks. Um, so that was shitty. And then, um, we would occasionally go out in the, in the red zone and pick up a source and then bring the source back. Um, which was always harrowing and, and scary. And, um, and we had these big, like, gigantic, hulking armored vehicles that just we call them bullet magnet vehicles <laughs> because that's what they were. And um, I mean, you know, the military had it so much worse. They were going out every day. There was there was no comparison. Um, but I don't I don't think I was at all prepared for just how awful it would be.
2: Yeah, it's interesting too because the DIA would go out in thin skins.
4: Yes, it, exactly. They
2: would go out in disguise and thin get thin skins, okay. and the agency would make you guys go out in these up armored right. SUVs that would draw. Every, like you're not doing a, a covert pickup or a clandestine meet in, in you know in an up armored suburban or whatever.
3: Exactly. I mean that you are a hundred percent right, and I I was very close with our with our dia counterparts and that they were doing that every day they were going out as you said in these beaters and um you know in local garb and i mean personally i felt like it was it was maybe a better way of operating but um i don't know i mean there were pros and cons on both on both sides yeah, so.
0: yeah. uh we got to give a shout out to our sponsors here uh, real quick so uh our first sponsor for this show is the light sleeper which uh our friend dustin ward uh it's a veteran-owned company he's a ranger who uh came up with this should have should have been obvious should have been invented 100 years ago but he invented it he took a woobie a poncho liner and designed it so that it has a pouch in it you can put a sleeping pad in and there's another pouch you can put your inflatable pillow in and this whole thing stuffs up into a stuff sack and um you know anyone who served in the military particularly in the infantry knows that the poncho liner is basically the best invention probably the most stolen item
2: out of the Um, military yeah gear
0: darpa has never done anything to surpass the poncho liner (laughs) yeah they're trying but (laughs) failing uh the the is the best invention out there, and uh, Dustin basically figured out how to make it even better. Uh, and you can go and find it at thelightsleeper.com. And if you use the code uh, the promo code Teamhouse, you'll get 10% off your first order. Hope you guys will go check it out. It's inexpensive piece of gear, probably one of the best pieces of gear you'll ever yeah. have for camping. Say it one more time. Lightsleeper l i t e sleeper.com. And the promo code is TeamHouse for ten percent. Yeah, your and if quarter.
2: you're if you hike, if you camp, you really do need this piece of kit. You will love it. If you're married and you find yourself on the couch, uh, you you need this piece of kit. Um, every house should have this piece of kit. Um, uh, our other sponsor we want to thank is uh, AARP Veteran Report, and it's uh, our um, good friend Toby Harden is the uh, editor of it. Mm-hmm um justin Sapp has written for it a number of people written for it and it's you don't have to be a member of aarp like some of us in this room um but uh but it's it's a report for veterans and they don't spam you they only send you the reports reports about you know people in the military veterans what they did in the military what they're doing now about veterans issues um even if you're not a veteran you'll probably find some you know some Really interesting information. If you watch this podcast, there'll be good, there'll be interesting stories. Yeah, it's there for good for you. the
0: family members. Also. Yeah.
2: Um, but they have My Hero, they have Then and Now, they have a number of different types of articles. Um, but it's free. I mean, you can't beat free. And again, they don't spam you
0: with all the other stuff. It's just that. And you can. AARP.org slash Vet Report. Check it out. You'll love it. One more time. AARP.org slash Vet Report. That's where you can go and sign up. Back to the star of
2: our show.
3: (laughs) I'm going to buy one of those light sleepers. They're
2: amazing. You guys
3: sold me on that. That
2: We had one in the studio to show. I took it it on vacation. And now we don't have one in the studio (laughs) to show.
3: That's awesome. I'm going to buy one.
0: Uh, so in Baghdad, um, tell us a little bit more about, you know, what, what you were experiencing out there. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to ask for like details about sources you can't reveal, of course, but I mean, as deep as you're able to go about like, you know, you know, what types of people you're meeting with, what types of information you're trying to get. What were your objectives? Because CIA is
2: usually worried about strategic level information. Now you're in a tactical environment.
3: Exactly. I mean, you said it perfectly. It was a little bit of a mess, to be honest. Um, and because and I, and I don't blame anyone, because I think it was so sudden, we were just thrown into this war all of a sudden. And like I said, the training was not geared toward that. Nothing was geared toward that. We kind of they just threw us in Baghdad. And it was like, go find Zarkali. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that was it. Um, and we had no idea. I was in the counter-terrorist branch. And yeah, I mean, in theory, we were supposed to be going after Zarqawi and his cadre, you know, dismantling his network. And in reality, we were just, you know, we'd be lucky if we could find information on a roadside bomb. Um, and we, we, like I said, we didn't, we almost never went out into the red zone. And we definitely weren't out like, hey, you know, what's happening? What's, where's the next terrorist, you know, where's the next terrorist attack? We weren't out, you know, talking to people, schmoozing. Um, so we relied on people walking into the green zone and, and, and 99% of it, or I don't know what percent, but you know, a lot, most of it was just crap. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: Um, and it was whatever people gave us. And we kind of had to hope that we would get a gem. And part of the problem was that, you know, the military had the same mission we did, which is different from a peacetime country, you know, usually the agency has a pretty clearly defined mission um in a war zone we were kind of stepping on each other's toes we really didn't there was no real difference in our mission um and uh and the military was was going out a lot more than we were and they were actually like getting more sources than than we were but we didn't have a clear demarcation of of responsibility so Mm. it was sort of it was it was just kind of a mess um and, and for example, we would have we, – we relied on this one tactical human team at, at one checkpoint in particular. Um, when we would get walk-ins, they would call us. But that was just through their good graces. It was just because right. we built a relationship with them. Um, they didn't have to give us sources because they were just as much interested in those sources as we were. Right. Like, you know, like it was overlap. So. Right.
2: You, you know, you, it's interesting because you mentioned the military going out. And when you say the military, I assume you mean like the DIA like, – the military intelligence, your counterparts right. and, well, not, and
3: not just CIA, but there were other, you know, military intelligence.
2: Right. Yes. Right. Um, and was there, uh, how, what was your, you said you had a good relationship with them and you worked guess. with them, but yes. what was the organizational relationship? Like what did the agency at all kind of come in as like swinging the big stick? Like this yes. is ours now. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes. 100%. I mean when I got there, so my background had been working, you know, as a civilian with the military, but I was like overseas I was one, like one of the only civilians um, and I loved loved working with the military. I loved the culture, I loved everything about it. And I got to Baghdad in the middle of a war zone and like the CIA was not talking to the military at all. Um they would not give them the time of day, they wouldn't share information, and they were like angry because the military wasn't talking to them. And I was like, this is ridiculous, like you're in a war zone, like the military runs the show, you know, you've got to play with the military. This is, you know, you got to share information. Um, so, I, so I reached out, it was, I think, at the, I'm trying to remember, it was the 3rd Brigade Combat Team or the 4th Brigade, they, they switched while I was there. It was first the 3rd and then the 4th Brigade Combat Team, or I might have it reversed, but... Um, I- yeah, I, but they, I, were, I, they were, they were stationed at Prosperity in the Green Zone. And, um, and they were the ones going like out on patrols. And, and we weren't even talking to them. We didn't even know who they were. So, I, you know, I said, I, I guess I just kind of, I was like, I'll be the one to do it. So I went over there and um, introduced myself, built a relationship with them. And, um, and I was kind of a liaison. Um, so, um so uh, you know, so so we were able to build a, a better relationship with the military. I don't think it changed significantly the fact that we still weren't really coming close to Zarqawi. I mean, there were so many other factors. Like I said, we weren't going out. We just we just weren't even close. We weren't getting the kind of sources we needed.
2: Now, with this relationship with the military, obviously you needed them, or at least their like tier one assets you know, in order to action any kind of intelligence, actionable intelligence you guys got. How was that relationship for you guys?
3: So, um, well, first of all, we didn't really have that much actionable intelligence. Um, but, yeah, so that, that was what well, we had. So we had, um, like, special forces units that, I, I guess I'm talking about kind of big army that okay. we didn't have a relationship with. We, we did have a relationship with particular you know SF units yeah and, the, and they, would to,
0: they would help action yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: could you tell us about what it was like uh, a little bit more like when you did have to go outside the wire on some of those you know rolling meats and and things like that what what that was like for you
3: yeah I mean it was God it's so hazy to me but um you know it was nerve-wracking I, I always I don't know I just like I felt like we were in this big bullet magnet like it was just luck whether you know someone was going to shoot at us or bomb us um and i remember one time we had a checkpoint out like in downtown baghdad and i mean just some random it wasn't an official checkpoint it was just some random dude with a gun
4: Mm
3: -hmm. you know it's like you get that in every war zone and it's like what the fuck you know like you don't know who they are they're Mm -hmm. just gonna it turned out it was a Curtis checkpoint actually. But, um, I just remember that being like, Oh my God, I'm going to, I'm going to die. <laughs> and, um, so I don't know. I, I was, I was scared a lot of the time. I mean, I, I, I was, it was just, it was harrowing.
2: Yeah. Did um, you, uh, what was your impression of like the GRS guys you worked with? I mean, they like, we know some of them, they, they, they're, yeah. they're solid dudes that, you know, the ones we know.
3: I thought they were great. I mean, I I, I love those guys. I mean, I felt like my life was in their hands, and they kept us safe. You know, yeah. I mean, they were just awesome. Um, yeah. I mean, they were risking their lives more than anyone because they were going. They were t- they would take all the case officers out all the time. You mm. know, so um, they were awesome. I mean, yeah
0: and as uh, as time's going on through uh, 2004 into 2005 are you seeing the situation in Baghdad kind of like uh deteriorate more and more
3: yeah, so it deteriorated pretty steadily up until the elections, which I believe were in January 2005 and so you guys were there I think during during the elections uh as I was well.
2: i I think I was I'm trying to remember.
3: Well, I mean, we all thought the shit was going to hit the fan on election day. I mean, it had just gotten so violent and so bad. And um, we thought every polling location was going to get blown to bits. Like, we thought this was going to be the biggest disaster in history. Um, And it was, I still remember, I mean, that day, it was miraculous. Like, it was so peaceful. I mean, it was more peaceful than our own elections here. I mean, it was like it was it, it was incredible i mean there was like i don't know maybe two people killed that day i don't remember what it was but but it ran so smoothly and um people were lined up uh outside the polling the polling centers to vote and i remember one so i was like calling my sources saying what's going on tell you know give me the the, the like the sit rep and um and one of my sources said it was so jubilant and he was like Oh my God! People, people would wait in line for hours because they—that's how important the right to vote was. Like even though they could be blown up by suicide bombers, just waiting in line, they did it anyway. And um, and this and my my source, I remember, was like, yeah, people are waiting in line, but um, people brought chocolate and they're all sharing chocolate with each other. And I just remember, like, it was such—it was one of the best feelings I had when I was there. It was like, oh my God! Like this is this is the real deal. This could really be happening and um so I, I remember that day just being jubilant and a day full of hope and then what's kind of sad i think is that you know in the months after there was sort of this vac this power vacuum and i i, I do feel like you know the i don't know all the 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 ruling authorities kind of um squandered the opportunity mm-hmm. because i think you know that was the time when the country had kind of united and and violence subsided noticeably. It was like a huge, that was the most resounding blow to terrorism that I witnessed while I was there. It was not any strike or, you know, military attack. It was those elections. Um, and it was really powerful. And I thought maybe this is the start of something, but it was like weird, you know, nothing really happened in the, in the ensuing months. Um, you know to build a functional government and then eventually it kind of lapsed back into chaos again
0: mm-hmm. uh,
3: do, you, do you guys have thoughts on that
0: yeah no i think you put your thumb on it pretty well i mean from from a, a purely a military standpoint um whereas it, it's seen as a as a huge failure and in the in the end it was but there was a moment created right there was a moment that we were targeting what we called AQI at the time, so heavily um, that they were pretty much wiped out by a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that created a, an opportunity, as you say, for governing authorities to step in. Yes. And yes. whether you can you can blame the government of Iraq, you can blame our government, there's lots of blame to go around, uh, <laughs> lots of finger pointing. But whatever the case, that didn't happen. And that led to, you know, we all know what happened to Iraq after we left.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: And so your tour in uh in Iraq starts winding down. How long were you over there for?
3: A year. a, f- yeah. a full
0: year. Yeah. Um what, what so what's the next step for you when you get back home?
3: So, let's see. When I got back home, I Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's okay. Oh my gosh. I thought I turned everything off. So it, it's li-
2: it's live TV. Everything things like this I'm happen. So
3: sorry. Oh my gosh. No, it's all right. Um, so I think I, you know, I took like a month off and, um, I think for sure I had PTSD, although I didn't recognize it at the time. Um, and I remember oddly enough, I remember, um, looking it up online at the time, like what's the definition of PTSD. And I remember the definition was you have to have witnessed a very specific traumatic event. And I was like, Oh, I'm good to go. Like I, there was no... I didn't watch someone get blown to bits in front of me, you know, so I'm good to go. Um, and now of course they know that's, that's not true and that it's a broader definition. It's much more cumulative. Um, so I mean, well, I, I I don't know about you guys, but I, I like for, for me coming back was hard. It was, um, it was like, like the, the obvious stuff, like loud noises and, um, like i remember gym gym weights dropping on the floor like when the ground would shake you know i mean that would send me into a panic and and you know in traffic jams like you want to have an, an egress you know you don't want to – or crowds um i mean even to this day i still get panicky in those situations so um so it you know a lot of it was just adjusting to to regular life um, and that took me i don't about a year i think to get fully not fully, but mostly re-acclimated, um, back at the agency, I, I basically bided my bid by, by bid my time, um, uh, until I started language. I was supposed to do, um, I was supposed to do kind of back to back combat tours. I was going to go off to Afghanistan, um, which I had requested. And so they had me enrolled in, um, Farsi language. So, um, so I kind of, but the, you know, given the timing of the class, it didn't start to like the following fall or something like that. I forget. So I just, I just kind of laid low at headquarters for a while and then did a year of Farsi.
0: Um, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a, a whole year of Farsi. It's, I mean, you must've been fairly fluent by the end of that.
3: I was fluent. I mean, I, it was, it was awesome. Like I loved learning Farsi and, and um, it was one of the highlights of my time at the agency. Um, but in the end, I ended up resigning after that. I never went on the Afghanistan tour. I think I just um, – it, it it was, like I said, the, the agency was never a great fit for me, and I felt like I was ready to move on.
0: Yeah. You, you also mentioned – and I mean I've had other people mention this to me over the years, some of the uh, sexism in the agency. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and why – why you think it persists you know maybe yeah. in that organization in a unique way that you, I mean it exists everywhere in society, but I mean it, uniquely in, right. in, in the intelligence community
3: hundred percent yeah, I mean it's weird because you know I worked at DoD and DoD was more heavily male than the agency was um, and I never felt like a second class citizen as a woman at DoD really never um, I mean you'd have like a bad egg here and there, but as an institution, I felt very respected. And I, I think the and and not really true with the agency as much. And I think the fundamental difference is that DOD I think is a is a transparent, accountable organization. And I think they have such strict rules and they do like sexual harassment training and they ha- they're accountable. And I think the agency is just it, it's so shrouded in secrecy. I mean, there's this culture of just impunity and a lack of accountability, and people just think they can do whatever and there are no consequences and they're kind of right. I mean, and, um, I mean, it's very much kind of like kind of an old boys network. And, um, and you know, you didn't want to, you don't want to speak out about it because you're going to be blacklisted. Um, I mean, I remember, you know, the head of, of, of a very senior guy in my division, you know, Telling me he wanted to talk to me about. I, they did not send me to Baghdad an alias for no clear reason, which was it was so it was so asinine. It was like arbitrary. They would they would send some people an alias and some people not, and it was just luck of the draw. It was like mm-hmm. whoever your desk officer happened to be. And um, I'm Jewish and I have a Hebrew name, Ilana. So I'm like, you know, I don't, wanna, I don't <laughs> want to. I don't want meeting with these. <laughs> like you know, I don't want to meet with some of these people with a big Hebrew name. And they were just like, we don't understand what you're talking about. What does that mean? What's Hebrew? Whatever. Anyhow, um, so long story short, this I, I ended up by the way just putting duct tape on my back. That was my that was my cover. So so like these terrorists wouldn't, you know. I mean, I would li- listen to them at these at these meetings, and they'd be like, oh, I'd be like, you know, where who's behind this bomb? And they'd be like, the Zionists. Like the Zionists planted those roadside bombs. And you're like, okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, anyhow, my point is that one day this this senior guy in my division was like, I, you know, he asked, oh, did you go over an alias, you know, because you're because you're Jewish. And I was like, no, I didn't. You know, I wish I had. And he's like, well, come into my office and we'll talk about it. And I'm like, OK. So I go into the, his office and he like closes the door and he's like, you know, I find Jewish women very attractive. <laughs> and it was like, come on. <laughs> but that's the kind of smooth
2: like sandpaper man he's a player wow put put on a sex panther before you yeah
3: (laughs) yeah Yeah. it was like here i'm like here i'm like thinking oh finally someone's gonna listen to my case that i for an alias like they're gonna you know they're gonna fix the process right (laughs) right so yeah
2: yeah yeah, um, but
3: that's an example of the shit that, you know, and, and what what am I going to do? He's like he was like one of the senior people in my division. Am I, you know, what am I going to do? Like report him or I mean, it wasn't a big deal. I, it, I was just like, you know, no, thank you. But um, <laughs> right. it just happened.
0: To me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you uh, depart from the agency and um, what, what's the next stop for you?
3: So, um, so that's when I used my law degree that I had never used before.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> um, so you know, like I said, I' had gone to law school between while well, I was waiting for the agency to process my application. Um, so, I had this law degree, and I had never taken the bar exam. I never thought I would practice law, so I took the bar exam like five years after I had graduated from law school, which is ludicrous and i don't recommend that to anyone (laughs) um and um and then i practiced law for a couple years um and i worked for a really small national security law firm and um we were sometimes like on the other side of the bench from the agency so i mean basically i like to say our our firm kept government honest like we would represent people who um, kind of got screwed by the government, you know, which happens a fair amount. <laughs> yeah. Um, a yeah. bit.
2: A scooch. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, you know, people who had clearance issues or, um, whatever, you know, had, had some grievance against the government. So, um, so I did that for a couple of years and then, and in that time, then I got married and then I, um, had my son. And and then I was just like and then I just stopped and was a mom for a while. Um and then so when my son was um a year and a half, uh then my husband so my husband works for DOD as a civilian and um he used to be army and uh but he he uh was stationed, he got a tour in Bahrain, so um for two years. So that's when that's when I moved to Bahrain. For my husband's job um, with our son.
0: What was what was that experience like as a uh, DoD dependent with child in, in Bahrain, and during, also as a former intelligence officer?
3: Yeah, no, yeah. I know. I mean, it was like it was so kind of frustrating at times because I was like, "Oh, I just want to go out and like do stuff," you know. And here I am; I'm just like one of the I'm just one of the wives, and I didn't really like that. But you know, yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, it was it was interesting because yeah, I was, the expat community was interesting. I mean, it was such a, well, you got, you, Jack, you know, cause you read my book. I mean, so the, the, you know, I ended up writing the book about Bahrain and, um, the expat community is a big, a big part of that. And I mean, I just felt like the expats were so insular and so like privileged and elite. And, um, they lived in this little bubble and, um, so it was, it was interesting for sure. I mean, but like they wouldn't go out and explore the Island and I was so interested in the politics and like, I would go out and um, you know, I travel with my son, I would bring him places and I love to talk about the politics of the country. And people were always like shushing me. They mm-hmm. were like, don't talk about it. Like we don't want to, I don't know. Cause you know, there's not a lot of freedom of speech in Bahrain. And, um, but I was like, you know, I th- I think the monarchy is really repressive and, and it was interesting to talk politics.
0: And- yeah. Do, do you want to flesh out a little bit about Bahrain? Um, because I'm, uh, I'm testing my, my own memory here. I, I read this great book. I've never been to Bahrain, but I read this great book years ago, Sectarian Gulf. I don't know oh, if okay. you came across know, that. It talks it talks a lot about Bahrain being um, during the Arab Spring and how, it, correct me if I'm wrong here, Bahrain is a Shia-majority country
4: yes.
0: right yes. next to a Sunni-majority country, yes. Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. connected Absolutely. by a bridge. Correct, uh, Bahrain going through the nascent Arab Spring, potentially a revolution, whereas Saudi Arabia has this uh, Shia minority along the coast yes. on the other side of the bridge. Do um, you want to talk about that, about the geopolitics of the region a bit? Yeah.
3: I mean, you said it perfectly. You're so much – you're perfectly – well, you're perfectly informed. That's You said it I mean, exactly. my moments. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, so there's a tiny Sunni monarchy. I mean, it's the minority – and they run the um, Shiite; they, they rule the Shiite majority. Some people call it a plurality, depending on who you talk to, because there's so many foreigners. That's mm-hmm. actually the the majority, like workers who come from the Philippines and India, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a, a weird demographic in the in the Gulf, um, and you know, that's different from other countries in that the, the majority. Is not ruled. I mean, they're not the rulers. They're they're the you know the subjects. So um, I it was so interesting. And so the 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 Arab Spring kind of spread to Bahrain in um, 2011. It began with this thing called the Day of Rage, and it kind of simmered and would flare up. And it was very much in effect when I was there. So I was there from we were there from um, early 2012 to the end of 2013. So almost two years, which was sort of in the you know, in in the center of the Arab Spring there. Um, And it was so I mean, it was very much in effect, you would see uh, uprisings, and you'd see the, um, you know, the the government forces using like tear gas, which was not tear gas, because you could smell it, it was some as I talk about my book, I mean, they would use really heavy handed tactics. Um, And, and, um, and it was it was really interesting. So the other interesting part, though, as as you said, Jack is so next to Bahrain is Saudi Arabia, um, which is almost entirely Sunni. Um, And it's, uh, it's basically Bahrain's benefactor. I mean, they support, they support Bahrain, and they're the ones who really supply the muscle behind,
4: Mm -hmm. um,
3: behind repressing the Arab Spring. Because Bahrain is a pretty inconsequential country without Saudi Arabia, and it no longer has much oil, like Saudi Props Bahrain up financially as well with oil, um, but on the other hand, so you know, this is in, in press reports. You have Iran that's, I think most people agree is probably is probably providing some level of funding and support to the the insurrection, to the revolutionaries, the Arab Spring. So I mean, it was to me it was such an interesting conflict because there wasn't really a clear right side. Like on the one hand, you have this relatively enlightened monarchy. I mean, and they're not they're repressive, but not as repressive as some Gulf mm-hmm. monarchies. I mean, I didn't have to wear, I didn't have to be all covered up and they're relatively tolerant religiously. So on the one hand, you have an enlightened monarchy that's that's, uh, backed by Saudi Arabia, which is like kind of our ally, kind of not, you know. Um, And then on the other hand, you have these revolutionaries that are legitimately, you know, fighting for rights. They were denied uh, representation in government. They um, were denied, being able to work in various ministries of the government ministry of foreign affairs ministry of defense like all the important ministries the she basically the shia are excluded so you have this like legitimate um movement but then it's kind of being funded by iran um which you know does not have good motives and wants to take over the goal right and basically you know it's like a cold war it's like a proxy war yeah that people don't don't realize is going on
2: and it's amazing that for being a proxy war between you know Essentially, like Salafist and, and, you know, Shia, you know, these two very opposed competing interests that Bahrain is generally a peaceful, like it's a very advanced, you know, uh, like technologically architectural, like things like that. Like, like they still, um, they still somehow get by through this.
3: Yeah, I mean, despite, like, the simmering conflict. Yeah,
2: yeah but we don't yeah. have another, like, Lebanon, right? We don't have another, like, Beirut or, or something like that. But you're right,
3: with. you're right, you're right. I mean, it never really, I mean, the, the Arab Spring never really found its feet um, in, in Bahrain. Well, the, the um, Saudis
0: also sent the National Guard over to squash it, didn't they?
3: Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, if it weren't for Saudi, right. I think it would be a very different story.
2: But And Saudis um, should be heavily, in, I mean, not should be, but it, it, in like a moral or, or what, ethical sense, but should be from a self-preservation sense, very involved yeah. because they don't want a Shia That's
3: right. neighbor
2: for Iran to, you know,
3: influence. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And also they have their own sort of pocket of revolutionaries, as Jack was saying, and they right. don't want it to spread to their country. Yeah. Right.
0: And then the the missing the other missing uh, part of this, of course, is the American presence on Bahrain.
3: Right, right, right. And that and that's what was I mean that's what was so intriguing to me. It was like, um, you know, like what side do we take? What role do we play? I mean, we have our fifth fleet there, and of course, that's really largely to you know fend off Iran. We want we want to keep an eye on Iran, um, so we have to be friends with the Bahrainis um, and with Saudi. But you know, at, at what cost? Because there are these, you know, at times pretty horrific human rights violations um so i mean that was so interesting to me i don't have a a good answer i mean i think as as you can probably tell from my book i mean i think it's such a um it's such a complex calculus and there are so many different um factors which which is what made it interesting to me
0: so when when you got back from bahrain and this whole experience i mean was the was the book already in the back of your mind or was there some more things that kind of led up to that
3: yeah, not really. I mean, it wasn't really in the back of my mind. I, I, it was such a fascinating um, setting, so so that was kind of, you know, I definitely felt like, oh, maybe I should write about this, but I didn't necessarily have a clear story. Um, and I originally I started writing. It was it was kind of like a, a spy flavored thriller, and um, and then I realized, you know, it was like all my years of spying sort of, I don't know, they just. I kept thinking about them and I kept thinking about, um, you know, just some of my experiences and operations. And when, I don't know, when I started writing and, and, and editing, I thought, you know, I need to write a spy novel. Like I just, I felt like, I mean, I, so I there was one operation in particular um, in Baghdad. So I had uh, I had helped to, one of my sources helped to track down this, um, one of the military's top ten targets. Um and he was alleged to have participated in the two thousand three bombing of UN headquarters in Baghdad if oh, you
0: Yeah, remember. we had we had uh, Bob Adolf on this show who's the head of security for oh. the un at that building yeah oh my yeah his his, his wife wow. was injured yeah um because she worked there yeah i mean yeah if you guys go back into the previous episodes we did with bob adolf you, you hear him describe that that event in detail
3: okay i will for sure um yeah so there was so there was this 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 guy i mean this terrorist alleged terrorist who was supposed to have been part of the bombing and who was also supposed to be responsible. So I I wrote about this in an article, but I didn't mention this part because I feel like this is so tricky to talk about. But um, he was also but it was cleared by the agency. Um, So he was also alleged to be responsible for um, Mopin. Do you remember? um, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think he was promoted to sergeant. Sergeant Mopin. He was the last US soldier who was still missing in Iraq for for a while I, I i don't remember exactly what happened but does does this ring any bells um with you i'm trying
0: i'm trying to think i mean there were a couple soldiers or when uh when our fob got attacked and they pulled a couple they pulled one or two guys off the fob and then executed them on the side of the road but i think they found those guys relatively he, he quickly. was with the 724th yeah. transportation company
3: mopen it's m-a-u-p-i-m
2: yeah he was uh Missing since a fuel convoy came under enemy attack in Iraq. Okay. okay. Yeah.
3: And at the time, he was the only, the only soldier still missing. Like he, you know, they hadn't found mm-hmm. out what had happened to him. And this guy was responsible, was alleged to be responsible as well for, for his disappearance. Um, and so, um, so you know, it, kind of through luck, my informant was able to um, track down this this alleged terrorist and we brought him in and we questioned him and at the end you know, he didn't admit anything and then at the end of the interview you know we detained him we put him in a helicopter and sent him off to a detention facility um and and it went on and um years later you know i found out an agency colleague had had also had questioned him at a different detention facility he was still in the system and he still hadn't confessed to anything and um and you know we weren't really sure we had the right guy, and um, and I don't, I I have no idea what happened to him, and I don't know if he was the right guy or not, and um, it was it like it it really kind of stuck with me, and it it haunted me, and um, so I, I think in a lot of ways, like my book was kind of, you know, in my book, this guy makes these decisions um, that affect the course of the Arab Spring that he doesn't necessarily anticipate. And, um, I think in a way it was just me kind of processing my own experiences.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, so when, when did the idea that this book, uh, first, like come to mind, like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to do this.
3: Um, probably when I got back from, uh, Bahrain Mm -hmm. and I, like I said, I had written some nonfiction pieces over the years. Like I had, um, written about my experiences in Baghdad, but at the time they were, they were too personal. I felt like I don't want to, you know, I, I felt like I needed to write something, but I didn't necessarily want to publish my story cause it was just so like personal. Um, so I think, so I had in my mind, I thought I need to write something. I think it was like percolating in my mind, but um, but I didn't quite know what story I was going to tell till I got back, until I went to Bahrain, got back and thought, you know, I'm going to tell my stories of of, of espionage, but I'm going to do it through the prism of Bahrain Mm -hmm. because I felt like it was such an interesting murky conflict where I could kind of portray that, um, that ambiguity, you know, and, uh, and the, the difficult moral dilemmas.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, so the, the book, I think we're talking a little bit about before we did the show. I mean, I I saw that you had written this book. I went and got it and read it and I I really loved it. Thought it was, it was, it was, I was kind of blown away by it actually. Um, and also not knowing what to expect, but I mean, I was expecting my assumption was that I was going to read a book about kind of a young female CIA case officer in Baghdad chasing after Al Qaeda or something like that. Um, but what I read was a, a novel about sort of a, a middle-aged career case officer at the twilight of a mediocre career uh, it had a very, a very noir vibe that from the beginning of the book, you know, something really bad is going to happen, but you're not sure what it is. And that's what kind of, you're reading to the end of the, to find out what the, what's going to happen. Um, and, and the protagonist is not necessarily a good guy either.
3: Oh, no, no. Oh my gosh. And you won't believe how much shit I get for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I- no, he's not necessarily a likable guy. I mean, I, you know, he kind of represents the business and, and espionage, and you know, it's uh, people are like that. I mean, I think that I wanted someone really realistic. I felt like, for God's sake, like the world has enough of the, you know, of the spies that jump from roofs and and wear tuxedos and drink martinis and are polished and you know, awesome and can do anything. I mean, there're plenty. And that's great, but there are plenty of those out there, and I just wanted. You know, I wanted someone real and gritty, and um, and and to me, I mean, yeah. And also, some of it was a little bit inspired by *The Quiet American* um, by Graham Greene. You know, like Thomas Fowler is this seasoned uh, British journalist who's kind of, you know, vying for the woman against the young, naive American station chief. So that was sort of in my mind as well. But um, but I yeah, I mean, I just wanted a really interesting damaged character someone who had been worn down by years of of manipulating people and years of operating in this sort of murky moral universe because that's that's i feel like that's what espionage is that's that's what it produces um and as a side note i you know i don't um i don't think he's all that unlikable (laughs) which i don't know maybe that people are gonna be bothered when i say that but i I don't know. I, maybe because I wrote the character, I felt like there were there were things I was rooting for him. Like I I felt like there were things about him I liked. You know, I thought he had redeeming qualities.
0: Well, the, the I think the thing that makes you want to root for him is that he's trying to fuck the bureaucracy back after all yeah. those years, right?
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, but you know,
2: it, uh, but that's a real person, right? A real person. Like if you think of a family member, you you would never necessarily say that anybody that we really love is perfect but that you know but they have redeeming qualities and and we we see them for those they're still human right we all have our flaws and everything um
3: yeah yeah i mean i right exactly i i uh i i think flawed characters are more realistic and more interesting and i feel like in the end they're almost more likable because who wants to like some you know polished mythical person I, I don't know. That's right. that's me. But I, I, you know, it's it's. I think it's such an interesting topic. I was thinking of like writing a piece on this because I have gotten so much shit for how unlikable Collins is, and um, and I just I want to be like, I mean, what do we look for in our fiction? Do we want like a best friend in our fiction? Is right, that what right? we
0: yeah, right. Because
3: that was my, I don't know. That's not what I look for in fiction, right. but. Um, I guess some people
0: do. Yeah. Yeah. They're looking for somebody to live through vicariously somebody they might want to go out on a date with, you know, yeah. And that's not necessarily this guy. Um, this, uh, so this time, and you know, maybe
2: this time that you're in Bahrain and, you know, you had left the agency and we didn't really talk about it too much. Did you have any regrets when you left the agency? Did you have any, like, you know, obviously you could have like changed, um, you know, gone from a case officer to another, you know, another field, yeah. but you, you kind of, sure. you cut ties. You yeah.
3: Know. But, no, I don't think I have any regrets. I mean, there are times when I miss being in the field, you know, like kind of just the feeling of kind of being alive and being immersed in it, you know? And, um, so there's that, but I, no, I don't miss working for the agency. Um, I feel like it was a little bit of a debilit for me it was a little bit of a debilitating organization like yeah. it kind of wore me down and um, I was always as you said fighting the bureaucracy or fighting something fighting sexism but yeah. you know it was I, I didn't feel like um, so so I mean I think I, I, I talked about how much I liked working for DoD and when I went to the agency I thought it would be a similar culture yeah um, it wasn't as much as I had hoped you know I felt like at DoD, um, there's like a camaraderie and sense of mission um, that I had really sort of yearned for. um, And I didn't really see that at the agency. It was much more competitive and cutthroat. It was a civilian. It was a civilian organization and with all that comes with that. So it was not, I didn't love it. It wasn't a great fit for me. Um, I didn't love manipulating people. I I actually hated that part of it. that was not. None of it was a good fit for me, and um, and I I don't think it would have been good with a family. You know, it would have been hard on my on my family and my son. So yeah, no, I don't I don't regret, and I, I also don't regret. Uh, I don't miss the the paranoia and the insularity of that place. Yeah, I mean like you're always oh my god, like you're lo- the looming polygraph, and you know you accidentally carried a pen out of the out of the building, and holy shit, you're gonna have to like confess on your next poly and you know i mean it, it's like this constant feeling like they're watching you and you can't fuck up or anything well, yeah
0: there's a there's a um without giving about away too much of the plot there's an aspect of your book where the, you know the protagonist wants to date this woman and play, this scenario plays out that I don't think is necessarily uncommon in, in at the CIA is she's a foreign national. He's an American right. CIA officer. Yeah. They do a background check on her, like, nope, not her. You can't. Right. So they, they yeah. can actually tell you, like, no, you're not allowed to have. What's the term they oh, use? Uh, persistent, persistent contact.
3: Yeah. Uh, close and continuing contact. Yes. Yeah, 100%. And in fact, I mean, it's much worse than my book portrayed it. Um, I mean, I had a friend who was denied... Uh, the right to, she was going to marry an, an American, well, a, a, no, a British, I, I won't get into the details. She was going to um, marry a an allied journalist, an ally, a journalist from an allied country. Um, and even that, they wouldn't let her do. She had, ended up having to resign just because at the time there was so much paranoia about journalists. Um, and... <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to think because he he ultimately became a U.S. citizen. He might have even been a, a U.S. citizen at the time, but it was just no, I guess he couldn't have been. But but it was so um, paranoid. Like there were no other issues other than that he was a journalist. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, it's it's actually kind of wild that they can deny based on something like that. I mean, you're you're saying that's a national security threat. Like like this yeah, guy cool. is a, like like on the same on par with a Ruski spy. You know, right.
3: Right. Well, that's, and that's the weird, like, like paranoid kind of, um, distortion you get. I think after years at the agency, it's like everyone could be an, an enemy.
4: Right. Um,
3: I mean, I remember like I had a, um, I had a friend who I had met, um, studying abroad who was Israeli and we really weren't close and continuing friends, but just to be safe, I was like, I was like, well, I'll just report her just to get her approved and everything. And, um, and I, and I mentioned in my, you know, forum, I was like, all right, I mentioned to our CI guy, our, uh, you know, oh, well, she contacted, or I, I said something like, you know, she's she was living in England at the time. I was like, do I still have to report her? And he's like, I said, she's living in England. He's like, well, that's what you think. She could be from next door. And I'm like, okay, you know, whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah. Or is she?
3: I know, right? I yeah. And <laughs> yeah.
0: um, so... I mean, some of these like actual experiences and and anecdotes obviously made it into the novel. I mean, do do you want to tell us a little bit more about like how the writing process took place and how the plot evolved and, and sort of like, you know, a thumbnail sketch of like what the book is about?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I knew I wanted to make it about this kind of aging spy, as you said, at the at the end of his career, caught in the crosswinds of the Arab Spring, where he really doesn't know what the right side is. And he. And he gets, you know, involved with this woman and in a murder in the revolution, and ultimately he's forced to choose a side, which I also kind of took from the Quiet American, you know, kind of Vietnam, like what side do you choose? They're all bad, you know, and um, so it was kind of a similar situation. It's like he's he's forced to choose a side. Is it the right one? What are the consequences going to be? And as you know, the consequences are not really what he expected um so i kind of i knew that that was what i wanted to write i didn't know the details all the plot twists those kind of just came out as i was writing but i um parked myself at a starbucks i would i would drop my son off at school in the morning and then i would go to the closest starbucks and i would sit down and i would just write all day and because of the agency's um uh, publication mm-hmm. review requirements. I'm 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 really fastidious about about um, complying with the agency's rules. Not, not all authors are, but I'm I'm really quite um, good about it. So I so you're not supposed to show it to anyone until you've had it approved, which means you can't show it to an editor. You right. can't show it to an agent. I couldn't show it to my husband, who you know he has now a clearance and I don't, but somehow I can't show my my work to him. You know so. So that's fine. Um, so I did it for like it took like five years. I just sat there wow. like three years writing, two years editing, and the whole time I'm thinking like this could be the biggest piece of shit ever, and I've just wasted five fucking years of my life like writing this, you know?
0: If they shut so, it down.
3: Yeah. Well, no, or that, or or just if I couldn't get it published, okay. like I don't like this could be the worst book ever written, you know? I didn't know, like no one had read it, right, like I had right. nobody to say. You know, I had nobody to say oh yeah that's pretty good or no that's shit or whatever you know like I was just like I'm gonna write this book and it might be terrible and who knows and nobody's read it and um, so yeah so I did that and I'm like I'll send it off to the PRB and and they and they were actually wonderful um, they were they they uh, they gave it back after a couple months with just minimal redactions I mean really cool. just a few words. Which was not my necessarily my experience in the past, especially when I'd written nonfiction pieces. They they were much tougher, and I really had to had to push back to get a lot of it cleared. Um, but uh, but yeah, they were great. And then I sent it off. Um, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I was flying blind. I had never gone through the process. I had no connections. I had no formal writing education. I, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, Jack, you've written books like what, what was your experience? Like? <laughs> not not
0: that. I just self-published them and put them out into the world. I mean, we were a Jenkins. Put them put them out there. Um I mean, great. one one of uh, the the you know, autobiographical uh book was was through a publisher, but the the rest of them I just winged it. Yeah. But I mean, you're you're kind of a, a real success story then. I mean, that I just love the idea. I mean, you really are the person dropping the kid off at school and writing the book at Starbucks. Um, that's pretty awesome. And and then getting it through the review board. And and so then once, once you did all of that, you were able to start shopping it around and try to find agents and editors and such.
3: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Once they gave the approval, then, um, yeah, I mean, I barely showed it to anyone. I just, I was like my husband, I mean, after it was approved, like my husband, my dad, and like Ian Caldwell, who, you know, has the, the, the blurb on my, on my book Ian Caldwell, <laughs> um who uh yeah he was the only other one like just the three of them I sent it to and um and then I just yeah I didn't realize at the time how how like audacious that was and how crazy it was to just <laughs> send it out there and cold I like cold pitch these agents just like I was you know back in my spy days I was like what do you think of me you know mm-hmm. like let's make a deal and I had no idea how how ridiculous that was and um and, and I kind of like used my spy skills cause I would research agents and I, cause I would look at like who they represented, what authors and be like, oh, I think he would like my book. You know, I kind of tried to use my, 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 spy skills. Um, and yeah, so I sent it out and, um, you know, I was really lucky. Like I got, I got multiple offers from, from different agents. So, um, and, and it just went from there.
2: And and once you had gone through that, because you had already put it through the PRB, then you, then, you know, obviously, since you're a former intelligence officer and you're talking to these agents, are they happy that you've already like put it through the PRB and they don't have to deal with that process?
3: I mean, yes, if they even know about it. Most of them don't even know about it. I mean, it's not, there aren't a ton of us and, um... Yeah, I mean they had they had no idea. I, it would be so easy, I think, for someone to just. I mean, a lot of it's just kind of the honor system, you know. Right. You, I could say, oh yeah, it's been approved or whatever, you know. Um, yeah, they they didn't even know, but they but when they did, they were very, um, they were very happy that it was like a hurdle that I that I had already jumped, and I think they were also surprised because those authors that that. Do have to go through the process like me. I think it's it's rare that someone. I don't. I mean, I think it's a little rare that someone's as as kind of. Um, I'm kind of neurotic about it. Like most, I don't know that most authors. I think you know. Oh, they have a co-author, or they show it to an editor, and I don't. It's probably not a big deal, but um, but I was like, no, I'm going by the book.
2: Yeah, and then, <clears throat> did uh, do does the require that you put something in the front of your book or something like that?
3: So they, you know, they used to. Um, and that says, you know, the CIA doesn't endorse it or whatever, but we've approved it and, um, they no longer do, cause I had added that because they had required it for previous pieces. And then they were like, no, we're no longer doing that. So take it out. But I think they might still require it for nonfiction.
2: Right. But- I mean, it makes sense to not require it for fiction because basically at that point it's- you're saying that, right. that this, that this person, we're not, we're not, uh, admitting that they had anything to do with CIA but right.
0: we we've looked at their book and it's right. okay.
3: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the PRB is kind of an interesting beast just from people I've talked and talked to over the years. I mean, some people breeze right through it. No problem.
4: Yeah.
0: Um, I, I remember I talked to one guy who wrote about his experiences. I'm not going to give any identifying information. I'm just going to say he wrote about his experiences for a book and the PRB said, no, and, and he's like, what do you mean? No. And they're like, you can't publish a word of this, not even the title. Right. <laughs> it's like, what? Right. Yeah.
3: <laughs> no, yeah. I know. I mean, it's it's so arbitrary, and it, everyone, and the pendulum kind of shifts, you know, like sometimes right. the PR is sometimes they're not. I mean, when I first was was submitting my work for, about Baghdad, I mean, they would redact the shit out of that. Like, they redacted my height and weight in the very first <laughs> draft I sent them. And I'm like, oh, check out my driver's license. Right, right. Tell like, the DMV that it's classified? Like, come on. Right. I mean, they redact ridiculous things. Like, the sky was... was Yeah, blind, like, yeah, right. and, I,
0: I remember okay. this guy telling me he's like, uh, he wrote about, like, meeting a, a source in a field that had rocks in it and they yeah. were they were like you can't publish rocks
3: right that's because you might be away. able to
0: identify where it's like there's rocks right. all over the world yeah. you can't tell yeah. me right yeah I
3: know. <laughs> like right like i'm five i'm five one. you know that will give it away i know it, it so it was totally arbitrary but but and and what's weird too is like so when they redacted you know the crap out of it the first time you know, I fought back and I put footnotes for every single thing. I was like, "This is in open sources. This is on my driver's license. You guys are idiots." You know, whatever. For like, for I, it was a voluminous work. There was uh, for every page. And to be fair, they lifted a lot of the redactions. I mean, probably two thirds of the redactions. It took years to do it. But
2: um, now, did you uh, did you, the? This is after you worked for the law firm, correct?
3: Yeah, I had just yes, I had just. Did, did you hire
2: that law firm or Mark Way or somebody like that to, to help hey, you? That's
3: the law firm
4: I work
2: for. Oh, really? I work for
4: Mark, yes. Yeah, it's <laughs> yes.
2: that's funny because yeah, but did you did you yes. uh, you know did you did you hire a counsel to help you with
3: that? I, I didn't. I mean, because I was the right right. I was, right. I was the, the law firm basically. Yeah. But, I, mean, I was of, yeah, yeah, no, um, no, a lot of people do, um, and but and i think the fact that i worked for that firm helped you know um it helped me understand the issues and i think they knew that there was a possibility that potentially we could sue them if they were too heavy handed mm-hmm. but i didn't feel the need to to take to take those steps i mean that's pretty drastic and it takes a long time and it can be expensive but um no i mean at the end of the day i just i just wrote i just was very methodical in saying This is really not not appropriate to redact and eventually they they listen to reason and that was i mean that was like 20 years ago we're talking or maybe not that no not that long but um but almost uh well no not quite that long but um but since then i think they've become much more lenient yeah and, and it's become much better
2: do you think that is um a result of like a PR effort on their part? Or do you think it's because so many high level people have come out and talked about their experiences and written books where they can't really, like they can't tell an SIS, no, you can't say this. Or
0: they've just been sued so many times. Or they've just
2: been sued so many times.
3: Yes. All of the above, I think. Yeah. Yeah. All of the above. I mean, of all of those things, I think maybe – the most is is the senior people like mm-hmm. publishing because i mean there are so many senior people I mean it's like you get to a certain point in the agency and it's like you got to write a memoir and go on 60 minutes and um and yeah i mean it's like it, it's it's funny because it's like they all toe the party line until they don't like what the party line says right
0: Right. Yeah. And, right. And then there is also a, a special special hell reserved for certain people who write novels who work for both the CIA and DOD, and they have to have it cleared by both. But that's yeah, that's I someone else's know. story to yeah. tell.
2: Yeah, because both <laughs> yeah. want to claim. Yeah, yeah.
3: I mean, how how like that's almost like Kafka esque in that it's like what do you do when you get different redactions, right? It's like well, well, it's supposed to be. I mean, which is classified, which isn't, right? Well, and, like, and the
2: two agencies will fight over who has supremacy over the, like the first pass and stuff like that. It's like it's
0: it's a way to it's a way to, it's another way they can shut it down yeah. essentially. Yeah.
3: Yeah. 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 Well, do you remember? I'm I'm drawing a blank on his name. Um, there was a that happened with with a guy, um, T- Anthony or Tony. Oh my, I can't remember his name, but it happened. He had had it cleared by DoD, and then, and I think he or maybe I, I forget never mind i it, that it happened something similar happened and and it was so murky and it wasn't clear if he'd followed the rules or not and i think the the um i think the government ended up buying all the copies um because they didn't want it out in the world and it became like a bestseller because they bought
0: the it that's amazing <laughs> well there there was another guy who was a knock that wrote a book that i don't think went through review and they they ended up yanking it off the market
3: yes it was um it was
0: ishmael Ish- jones.
3: jones exactly yeah yes that was the one yep that wasn't the one i was talking about but that's another good example yeah
0: um so you, you the the redactions for for the peacock and the sparrow were pretty light you said um yeah, yeah. you get that through um and since publishing the book, I mean you talked a little bit about it but what is the what has the reception been to the novel so far either from from general public or from former colleagues
3: I think the best reception i 've gotten has been from people inside the intel community i mean they really i think it really resonates with them i mean mm-hmm. i 've been so pleasantly surprised because it 's not the most favorable it doesn 't portray the Intel community in the most favorable light but Um, but I, I've gotten great feedback that it just really resonates with them. Um, and, and living overseas as well. And, um, and I think people either love my book or hate it, (laughs) to be honest. I think, um, I mean, there are people I think who totally get it and like, like you. (laughs) And, um, then I think there are people who really are looking for, um, a different kind of spy novel like a spy novel that they can live vicariously you know sexy and they're jumping off roofs and stuff like that and um and that there are gunfights and car chases on every page and i think a lot of people yearn for that um or kind of a a, a, co- a cozy spy novel mm-hmm. type so you know i'm not going to please those people
0: Right, right. I mean, the book, it's deliberately trying to make people uncomfortable in, in, in certain junctures, yeah. right? And, and and introduce this sort of, um, that, that, that ambiguity, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like challenging the reader, like, what would you do in this situation? Right, right. And, you know, how, how would you feel in this world?
0: Yeah, and I mean, that's probably some of the negative reaction you got to it is exactly that, that it, it makes people uncomfortable.
3: I mean I have to say that the the thing that confounds me the most is like some of the some of the reviews I get from readers like they conflate me and my character and I mean they actually like will call me names like well you're the author must be sexist you know you know because right. and it's like come on like you can't
2: you're writing from a perspective yeah
3: yeah i yeah. mean what kind of world do we live in where i have to write you know pollyanna characters because otherwise i'm i'm going to be vilified i mean kind of orwellian
0: yeah um well yes as we know from amazon reviews and youtube comments alike <laughs> they're not so silly. Oh, really? sometimes a little uh off a of left field yeah um, but that, that's, that, I mean, that's, that's just part of being a writer though, too. I mean, is yeah, it's, 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 sure. it's nice. I mean, this was some advice I got, uh, early on, actually, someone told me it's nice when readers are nice to you, but yes. they're not obligated to be, <laughs> And you, uh, totally, need, you have totally. to accept that too. You know, that's, totally. that's just part of, part of the, part of the job.
3: Totally. A hundred percent. Yeah. I have thick skin, so whatever, yeah. you know?
0: No, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you wrote the book you wanted to write. Um, and, and I mean, it's terrific. I really hope people will check it out. Um, so is there a, um, I mean, do you, how do you see yourself as a, as a writer, as a novelist? I mean, do you, are you going to continue writing? Is there another work in, in progress?
3: Yeah. So I, I, I do feel like spy novels are a good lane for me and maybe like the darker variety of spy Mm. novels. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've been toying with the idea of, um, write, of, of writing for my next novel um, kind of a fictionalized account of my time in Baghdad and um, focusing on that, that operation that I
0: described mm-hmm. earlier yeah.
3: where, I, you know, we helped apprehend this guy and then found out he might not be guilty and sort of all that that entailed.
0: That's no, that's, that, that's cool. Um, and I, I look forward to reading something like that. Do you I...
2: see, do you see Shane Collins making a, a, you know, do you see like a series based off of, of him?
3: I don't think so. I mean, I kind of envisioned it as a standalone just because mm-hmm. it was, it's kind of this guy making a last attempt to make, you know, it's a last attempt to make something of his life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, I don't want to give it away, but it ends how it ends, and and I and that's and I don't really see something um, following that. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I haven't read it, so if he dies at the end, that was a stupid question. But there's always the
0: prequels.
3: <laughs> someone else said that. But yeah, <laughs> it doesn't mean he died. But.
0: Yeah, the um, no, I, I would be interested to see a a, a novel, you know, a, a a Alana novel set in Iraq, because I I have kind of come to this sort of like. Had this jarring, somewhat jarring experience that I go to to these events sometimes, like veterans events and, and intelligence community events even, and everyone loves to talk about the six months, the first six months in Afghanistan, and everything else, the entire rest of the war is not spoken of, and you never, ever hear them mention the word Iraq. And it's a very, it's a very jarring experience to, to kind of hear that. And I I think the, you know, the, the, the first CIA paramilitary teams and the special forces ODAs that went in Afghanistan, I mean, they deserve to be celebrated for what they did. Don't get me wrong, but uh, it's, it's a little jarring that there's a 19 and a half years of war that are just sort of swept under the carpet.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. I didn't
0: know that. I, I mean, just, this is anecdotal, and I'm not saying they're all yeah. like that by any means. It's just a personal uh, observation.
3: So, no, that's good. So do you – what do you think of the idea? You like the idea? Yeah, the
0: I, 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 I love the idea, and I, I mean I think that there there needs to be a bit more exploration of that. And I mean this is sort of the, um, the, the role that novels can have sometimes in, in uh, providing the sort of like intellectual exploration – of, of that type of terrain. And maybe, you know, obviously in this case or in many cases with the people we talk to, it's the author is sort of like processing their own experiences. But I mean, you're not the only person out there that had some of those experiences and that it's like, I'd be the first to admit, you know, I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, what, what it, like the question of course, for, I think everyone who served over there is what does it mean?
4: I know. Like what, 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 what did
0: that mean? And it doesn't, Necessarily mean that the answer is all negative or all bad, but it's definitely a question that that I think a lot of people ask themselves.
3: Right, right. I mean, and I and I feel like it's it's such an experience that stays with you for. I mean, yeah. How how could it not? Yeah, I mean, do you guys feel like it still stayed stayed with you?
2: Yeah, in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, for I don't have the same sort of existential. Obviously, it's very frustrating, and it's very frustrating. It, like, Iraq was very frustrating just the way Bremer, like, going into it, you know, like, disbanding a 400,000-person army. You're like, well, that's dumb. Like, why would anybody in their right mind ever think? And the debathification and all of that. Um, and then, all obviously, you know, in Afghanistan and even Iraq, like, are dealing with Sadr. Like, he's our enemy, he's our friend, he's our enemy, he's our friend. You know, things like that, like, it, you know... Uh, Iran is is the primary enemy here. Oh, there are no Iranians in Iraq. Like, leave it alone. Like, that whole thing was all very frustrating. Um, And and then Afghanistan, obviously, the policies back and forth, you know, and and not just between the different presidents. Even under the same president, you know, there would be different engagement policies and different, you know, things like that. But I was fortunate enough to have been working with Indige the whole time. So for me as uh, for me we we were there with somebody else's dreams you know and and what's frustrating for me is is how that it all ended and that those dreams weren't realized but not the actual moment to moment yeah. like we're side by side but with with these these men with families who are trying to save their country from something worse so so i so that kind of existential you know angst isn't there just the yeah we fucked up and did what america has been doing since vietnam and and you know let people high and dry
4: mm-hmm.
2: you know and yeah. and we never had a plan like you can't win it's like a football game like you like you don't know if there are no goalposts, if you don't know how, what a score is, if you don't know yeah. like what the end tally is and how long it's going to last, like there's no metric for winning. You have to have 100%. goals, and we never had goals or or an idea of what winning looked like in either one of those wars. One hundred percent. So
3: You're right, yeah. Well
0: said. So it's fertile terrain to explore.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just have to get, get writing.
2: Well, we we look forward to it. Yeah, there's a lot to chew we, on there. Yeah. You know, yeah, we look forward to it, and we definitely. Do we have uh, questions? We for do have Alana? some questions.
0: Um, let's see here. And uh, as far as pe- people were interested to read the book, I don't have a physical copy because I read mine on the Kindle check it out there. You can get it in hardback. Um, and again, if you guys like eBooks, I mean, I, I read it on, uh, on my Kindle. It was awesome. Um, and there'll be a link right down in the description for people who want to go pick it up.
2: Uh, Joe's got you. Thank you very much for the donation. Uh, did your work in Iraq ever turn up any Iranian Kurds Force related groups or activities? No worries. If we can't get into this, I get it.
3: So, um, let me think about what they Prove that i can say yeah so i mean basically no the answer is no um for some iran I, I, well the answer is no i'll just say that yeah I, I, for for no clear reason
2: yeah i mean we're very aware because it's been talked about in the news recent you know within the last few years could are not could source but shia militias which yeah. you know get their their money and weapons from somewhere who knows where the the
0: pmu is being directly run and facilitated by by soleimani and irgc yeah there's no yeah there's no hiding that one and i think
2: that i think it's been well covered that you know the um the efps you know the the i the the you know the the improvise or the ieds that were very good at piercing armor um you know came directly from iran uh,
3: absolutely yeah you know. yeah no i you're right and that's all been in open press yeah. yeah yeah and i have a little bit about that in my book too even that some of that made its way to the shia in uh in bahrain and during the arab spring and and that was actually taken yeah just from research like
2: mm-hmm. real world yeah yeah um Gene Kelly, thank you very much. Uh, both Iran and Saudi Arabia have backed terrorism that has resulted in the deaths of American civilians and military personnel. Why does the U.S. government continue to side with Saudi in their conflict with Iran?
3: What was the first part? I didn't hear the first part. It, uh, it,
2: both, both Iran and Saudi yeah. Arabia have backed terrorism that has oh, result in, resulted yes. in the deaths of American civilians yes. and military personnel.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's sort of the essence of my book is like, wh- wh- you know, they're both bad sides. Who do you pick? You know, you pick the lesser of two evils. I think that's, and it's a constant dance. I mean, I think Saudi is a horribly repressive regime, and I think um, they have horrible human rights violations, and they produce, you know, people like Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. So it's like, do is that is that a country we want to ally ourselves with and support, you know? And then on the other hand, you have Iran. Um and it—that's—that's—that's that's, that's really the essence of, of my book. So um, I don't have a good answer other than Iran is—is the—is the worst of the two evils.
2: Well, I—and I, I think—I think the real answer is, uh, Kali, like buy the book. <laughs> Everybody who wants to know the answer to that question, buy the book. Um, uh, uh Sriracha, thank you very much for the donation. Uh I think Sriracha's question fell off. Are you drinking sherry cask tonight? <laughs> it's Balvany single barrel tonight. Um yeah. Uh, I don't think very it's good. sherry cask, but it does. It's, it's single number. barrel, I believe. It's cask number 363, but it's not a yeah. But it's not yeah, not sherry cask. Um let's see here. Uh Danny, thank you very much. Who is your favorite Jack Ryan, John Krasinski or Harrison Ford?
3: <laughs> Are they asking me that? Oh, yeah, yeah that's for you. Oh, um, I, I you know, I I hate to confess this, but I don't really watch those kind of movies. Is that terrible?
0: No, I, I haven't <laughs> seen any of the the Krasinski. Uh, no, I, I haven't either. I yeah.
3: mean, I have to say Harrison Ford because he's yeah. the only one I've seen. Yeah. I yeah.
0: had, a I had a friend ask me the same sort of thing to, uh, just today. Like, you know, what, what like espionage TV show would you recommend? I was like, I don't, I don't watch. I don't watch it. Yeah.
4: Yeah. If somebody's
0: not casting
2: a spell or, or uh, shooting a laser, I, I'm not interested. Yeah. In yeah. I'd much rather watch science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, let's see here. Cat chaser. Thank you very much for the, for the, uh, sticker. Let me see here. Uh,
0: yeah, I'm behind the
2: scenes oh it's it's the behind the scenes you're getting the real scoop here people yeah you're getting the the real deal <laughs> Un, unfettered access um and that oh i think we have a question or two on patreon right you haven't d okay i'll get them up
0: bear with us yes no <laughs> thank you a lot uh-huh. Oh, our, yeah, and if you guys are interested in uh, supporting the show and getting all of these episodes ad-free, there's also a link down in the description to our Patreon. We really appreciate all of you guys who support us and support the stream and keep this thing going. 225 episodes strong. We're still here. Thank you, everyone. Um, okay. Uh, from
2: uh, Isaac, uh Dear Ms. Barry, from your time spent uh, during the Arab Spring, are you seeing any similarities that lead to that episode happening in America because the fringe is going around, judging by the last few years, back to January 6th to Florida, Trump's indictment? What do you think might happen next?
3: In terms of is there going to be like a revolution, like an armed? It sounds like he's
0: asking about domestic unrest. Um, Yeah, I mean,
3: I'm trying to... Think how to answer the question. Um, I don't think we're going to have. I mean, I think the Arab Spring was to try to implement democracy, and I think you know January 6 was trying to tear down a democracy. In my view, so um, I don't. So I don't see that it as being similar in that. I don't see it being similar in that way um i do think it's it's unnerving that there's been so much unrest in our country in the last couple years in in a way that i never thought i would see in america i mean i you know having been to these other countries like iraq or bahrain where you think oh yeah wars and unrest only happen abroad and well clearly that's not true clearly it happens in our country so
2: um duncan idaho loved the book with an exclamation point cool thank you um like prior Team House guest J.R. Seeger, you have a good point of view character who is opposite gender from the author. Can you talk about this a bit and how you approached it? Interesting.
3: Yeah, um, yeah, a lot of people ask me that. Um, you know, I don't know. I really just kind of developed like the whole backstory of Shane Collins. I mean, Jack, as you know, like he was he was kind of physically abused as a kid and he his his parents were alcoholics. So I kind of created this whole backstory um of who this guy was and um and i drew on a lot of people that i had worked with um and um or known and i kind of it's just a kind of a composite of all those things and i really like when i would sit down to write i would just i would just get into like i'm i'm collins you know it was like a different world and i would just tune everything out And um, I think that's partly why I like the guy because I feel like I kind of stepped into his shoes. I can empathize. I don't know. To me, that's like the great part of writing is that um, you, you can empathize with, with people that aren't like you.
2: It kind of, you know, it reminds me of that old, I don't know. It was going around writing groups for a while (laughs) about the bad, you know, the, the bad, uh, the, the, a woman writing about a man the way a man writes about a woman, you know, for bad authors. It was like his yeah. pert testicles, you know, <laughs> you, you, you know. But but the idea is that that you're not like you're just writing as a human being, right? right you're right. you're yeah, not yeah, trying to, yeah. And it, he lets out a fart and you know scratches his yeah. ball. yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> I mean, did you guys think I wrote convincingly as as a dude?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I I think it was it was very convincing. It was very real. It was very visceral, you know? Um, if, if you, if, I mean, your, your pen name is kind of unisex too. I mean, if you didn't know that it's Alana Berry, then you probably wouldn't figure that a woman, or, I mean, you wouldn't know if a man or a woman had write it. I mean, I wouldn't have jumped to that conclusion.
3: Yeah. And every now and then I, like, I get a, I got a review that was like, oh, he did this and he, me, meaning me, you know, like they don't, they didn't they Oh, right,
0: right. They don't realize. Yeah.
3: Right. They don't realize I'm female. And that happened also with um, a bookstore who wanted to, yeah. They, they, I mean, they. they is, is
0: your husband oh, coming? Like, when yeah, does he arrive?
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Bill Gage. Hey, Bill. We love you, man. Uh, Bill Gage, former guest. I keep asking if Jack is going to bring back the black turtleneck he used to wear on early episodes of Mac Boland style. <laughs> uh, what does Alana think of author Bernard Lewis and his book, What Went Wrong? I know the book isn't widely appreciated by Arab scholars, it's viewed as an anti Arab by some. Uh, keep it up. Good work. Uh, love the show.
3: I have to confess I, I read part of it years ago and I, I don't think I finished it and I don't remember it. So I, I can't answer that. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh,
2: JJ, thank you. Uh, can you please ask about the work life balance of the CIA? Does she routinely work more than 40 hour weeks?
3: Yeah. I mean, am I really my experience? I mean, headquarters was fine. You worked the hours were fine at headquarters, but like in Baghdad and I think probably other places overseas. I mean, it, Baghdad was insane. I mean, you guys know it was. Like, we worked seven days a week. um I don't know, fifteen, eighteen hour days. I mean, it was ridiculous. And I mean, that's the fastest way to burn someone out and make them completely ineffective. I yeah. think I mean, it was.
2: And it's not like it there's, was, el, uh, you know, there's not like there's a whole lot else to do
0: there either. No, if there's you're was not nothing else to do. Working, yeah. Except the for bar. The, yeah. the the Babylon Bar sounds like the Star right. Wars cantina.
3: Yeah yes yes that was it that was what, i mean that was bat. that was all there was to do it was the Babylon bar but um but you didn't even really like you couldn't even really take a day in your pod you know for just because it was sort of taboo you know you just we're always supposed to be working but it, and it it wore on you so no i mean it's a, it's 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 very hard i think to balance you know family and and work um and you know when I was there they, they tell you right at the orientation it's like an 80% divorce rate in the directorate of operations so it's it's tough on families
0: So where uh where are you what where, where are you at today what else is going on uh, I mean aside from you know novel number 2 percolating in your mind is there anything else going on that people should know about
3: Um no not really i mean it's just that's that's it i'm i'm working on um book number two and Mm -hmm. not really making much progress at the moment um but no i mostly i have a, a 13 year old son and um he and he's my life and the book comes second and you know that's about it
0: awesome um is there a- anything else uh, that you want to plug or get out there uh, as we wrap up tonight?
3: No, buy my book.
0: Check out the book, folks. Again, the yeah. link, the link's down in the description. I really hope you guys will check it out. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, hey, look, the on the upside, when you get book number two out, we will have you back on the show. Oh, There's a little you. bit of i hope that the team house bump, I hope that's a little bit of added motivation. Yeah, and if there's anything we need to help you like, let
2: us know. We're happy to.
0: Yeah.
3: You guys are so awesome. Honestly. I'm like I'm really honored to be on your show. I mean, this was just a highlight for
0: me. Oh, I'm I'm so happy to hear that. And you know, we've um you know, I think when we had uh when we had Doug Wise on the show, um he 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 said something. Him. He he said he said something about how, you know, this is this is sort of a nonpartisan platform for people to talk about, you know, their military service or their time in the intelligence community. And there aren't very many of those out there was something he said. And that kind of like stuck with me that it's like, that's that's a really good thing. That's I appreciate the compliment. And we'll try to keep that going. Yeah,
3: definitely. I know
0: him. He's he's a good guy. Yeah, yeah. Doug yeah. Doug's great man. Uh, we had him on. A, we had him on a couple times, and we'll probably have to do it again one day. Yeah, he yeah. was. So he he was COS of Baghdad, like at, right after you left.
3: It must have been after I left. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Is there yeah. is there a community because we've had on uh, you know like a bill had mentioned J R Seeger like we've had on a number of people who have gone from the intelligence community to writing fiction and, and not, you know, not always spy fiction. Like J.R. Seeger's books were kind of steampunk. Uh...
0: He's, he's written spy fiction yeah. too though. Okay. And, and so is uh, Jim Waller. Yeah. Jim Waller. Um, and uh, I,
3: I, I know him. You know Dog. Jim? I, yeah. He's yeah. Awesome. We've had,
0: you've yeah, had him is. on and we're going to have uh, David McCloskey will be on in a couple months. Oh, yeah. 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 And
2: so is yeah. there like a community? Do you guys have a community of former intelligence officers who have, have branched into the fiction world?
3: So what's weird is that when I left the agency, it I, it was like a clean break. I right. mean, you kind of realize when you're out, like when you're out, you're out, you know, like people, a lot of people, you're no longer an insider, you know, and, and understandably, you know, sure. and you don't have the clearances and everything. So, I mean, for like years, I didn't really talk to anybody, except maybe a couple people. And then when I published this book, like that whole community kind of came out of the woodwork of like retired case officers, like Jim Lawler, Mad Dog, you know, and and um, and, and just a bunch of them, and they've been and they've been so great and just so supportive, and um, and so many of them, I was like, why weren't you my manager? At, you know, when I was at the agency, right? But yeah, I mean, I, I've I've connected now with more more people from the agency than I have since I was there. I mean, just with my book,
0: you know, that's fantastic. So, someone I have to start, uh, harassing in, in, emails is, uh, is Tom King, who, uh, was an agency analyst and he's a comic book writer now.
3: Oh, well, you met, you mentioned him. Earlier, yeah. Right? Yeah.
0: I, I, I'd love to get him on here and, and you would be very interested to read he, him and the artist, his artist, uh, Mitch Gerards. uh, they did, a, a graphic novel called, uh, Sheriff of Babylon. And it's about know. a guy who's a contractor in Baghdad during the war. Very, very good. They did, they did an awesome job with that. But wow. I, I, I will, I'll have to ask those two guys and, and try to get them on here one day. That
4: would be cool.
0: Uh, and
2: next time we have you on, we can talk about your affiliation with the, the with the UFO, the secret UFO. Yeah, the uh, secret
0: UFO unit. <laughs> I'm, oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It, it's uh, yeah,
2: it, it's all the rage right now to have on intelligence people who talk about ufos so well
3: i saw someone on twitter was like something about ufo but i didn't get it
0: yeah i it's uh it's all a mode yeah Yeah. that's a that's a whole uh, i'm not i'm not gonna go there it's too late in the night i'm not going there i'm not i'm not doing it sorry guys i'm not i'm not prepared you have to catch me when i'm fresh um but alana again thank you so much for coming on the show Thank, thank you for for writing this book and um yeah, look forward to having you on again when, when the next one comes out. I
3: would, I would love that. Thank you so much.
0: Absolutely. And everyone uh, watching out there, we'll be back on Tuesday with uh, Gary Harrington. He'll be here in studio. Uh, Gary served in Special Forces, and then he served in the CIA himself. Um, a lot of time in Afghanistan, so we're looking forward to having him here in studio. Last episode was awesome. Um, so we will see you Tuesday. Um, Elana? Thank you again for spending some of your Friday evening with us, and uh, we hope to talk to you again real soon.
3: Thank you. Thanks, guys.
0: Thank you. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.